Recall. All right, well, welcome back to Over There, the podcast about military history and activism in the age of Trump. My name is Terry Brennan. I'm an actor and circus teacher in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And my name is Matt Martin, retired drone pilot and defense thinker in the Dallas, Texas area. All right, so Matt, uh, we've been gone for, I don't even know how long, it's been at least... What would you say? Six months? It might be it's a little longer. Been a, it's been about six months. It's been a while. We had to go back into our respective bat caves to do uh-huh. some uh, plotting, thinking, and uh, just basically life organizing. You know, it's true. Some sometimes uh, the world is such an onslaught that you have to uh, retrench yourself from time to time. Yeah, yeah, well, especially now, right? Especially, especially now. now, right? So, um, yeah, yeah. So we uh, we've never done a podcast before. Uh, meaning, mm-hmm. like before this, I had never done like a podcast that regularly went up. Yeah, and you had not either, right? It's true. I was a, a fan. I listened to many podcasts, but and I always wanted to do one. But you know, I was active duty in the military, and you always feel a little bit of inhibition about that. And uh, so, I was very much looking forward to retirement. Uh, so I can start my own podcast. And then we did, and we yeah. realized that life still finds a way to get in the way. Yeah, it's hard. It's- uh, so, yeah, well, like we, I think the last time we probably podcasted would have been in like March-ish, because that was when I took a job mm-hmm. um, that changed my schedule entirely, and we missed like a week or two, and then a week or two turned into, let's, uh, let's take a pause and think about how we want to do the show, and that turned into... Um, like six months of not doing the show. Yeah. And uh, I had, you know, when I first moved down here uh, to the Dallas area, uh, it was to do a series of uh, temporary defense consulting gigs, I guess for lack of a better word. Uh, But I ended up kind of working for one specific company and that ended up turning into a full-time position. And then I was off doing all kinds of world travel uh, and it just made it uh, difficult. Oh wait! You did world travel while you were I, gone. I did some. I did a little bit of world travel. Oh man! I only went to Delaware. Um, <laughs> it's cool. It was a good gig, and they were nice people. I got to I'm hang sure. upside down by a, a circus, um, like a silk, and had to pull another person to climb up on top of me. So it was awesome. But it was again. I only went to Delaware. Well, that's that's so. not nothing. It's not nothing, right? So, but we're back and we're here to talk. Actually, you know, it's um, things of if we thought things were fraught when we left. Oh boy, uh, that is the there there was there another word more fraught? I wanted to say fraudier, <laughs> fraudier. But it's things are things are much far. Uh, things have progressed a lot in the Trump administration and sort of like. In, at least in my opinion, daily life in America since the last time we did this podcast. Yeah, they really have. <laughs> so, yeah, so we thought it's a, it's a good time to jump back in. We should it, just it, jump back in. It, it is. Uh, and another thing that happened that, um, that made, that made it uh, make sense to, to jump back into the podcast is... Uh, the the news of the terrible events that happened in the country of Niger in West Africa, uh, where some U.S. Special, special Forces troops were killed, uh, and it came out that, in fact, the United States has a very large uh, effort, a very large presence in that part of the world 
bigger than I think just about everybody realized. Uh, but it turned out that I had spent six months in Niger. Uh, and part of the time that I was there, I hosted a USO tour that was attended by my, my good friend, John Roderick, as well as uh, uh, Jonathan Colton and David Reese. And we had uh, uh, always wanted to talk a little bit about our experience on that trip and, and our time in Niger. And so John Roderick and I decided to get together and talk about that. And what followed was a two-hour discussion on all things uh, military and U.S. strategy and how the U.S. keeps getting into these types of conundrums and maybe, you know, what, what could be done about it in the future. Uh, and so I recorded that session and we thought, well, why don't we play that in two parts? And, uh, and that will be our, the first two episodes of the, of the new season of the Over There podcast. Yeah, exactly. So really quick, for people who might not know uh, who John is, can you give me just kind of a really brief sort of summary of like who he is and why he's so fun to talk to? Sure. John Roderick uh, is the lead singer of a, ba- a band called The uh, the Long Winters in, out of Seattle, Washington. Uh, they had so, a brief period of notoriety in the in the 90s. Uh, as w- John Roderick also played for... Uh, uh, a few other fairly famous bands around that time. I think they opened for the Decemberists at one point. Uh, but John Roderick now uh, is uh, a podcast personality. Uh, he's the the star of the Roderick on the Line podcast uh, with Merlin Mann and also the Back to Work podcast. And he's starting a new one with um, called Omnibus with uh, who is the who is the the big star from Jeopardy? Who is the record breaking? Uh, winner of Jeopardy. Oh, I can see his face, but I don't know his name. <laughs> All, right. All I know is he's Mormon and he's from Utah, and right. he was uh, he was on Jeopardy for like seven years. Yeah, so so that um, that podcast is about to come out called Omnibus. So if you are into podcasts, uh, you have probably heard uh, John Roderick at one point, uh, and uh, yeah, he was happy 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 to get together and and do another segment with us. All right. Well, that's awesome. Uh, Why don't we just kind of jump in and see what that is? Okay. We'll transition to that podcast, uh, to that, uh, that segment, Terry. Uh, And uh, we'll do that in two segments over the next two weeks. Uh, So I'll talk to you next time when we are both over there. Yeah, man. I'll see you. Over there, which is not Delaware, by the way. It's <laughs> not just, Delaware. <laughs> just it's it's sort of arbitrarily over there. It's <laughs> all right. Here we go. Johnny, get your gun! Get your gun! Get your gun! I've got a system here that is a bad system, but that's not your fault. <laughs> It might, it might be. You never know. Yeah. Well, I mean, you you know, you work for you work for the Department of Defense or whatever. So that's right. It is your fault. Why is it doing that? Maybe we should start with a little description of how we ended up in Niger and what was going on there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll introduce myself. Right. My name is John Roderick, and I'm a uh, musician. And uh, over the last ten years, I've increasingly become a podcaster and a sort of person um, on the internet as a, as both a pundit and sort of uh, comedian adjacent. Yeah. One of them public intellectuals. 
Yeah, right. And you discovered me through a podcast. Is that right? Uh, I discovered you through the pot through. No, I discovered you through uh, your uh, not moving to Portland fundraising video that John Hodgman had called attention to. and I went out and bought your albums and was enjoying them. And then, yeah, somehow I, I stumbled upon a, a podcast that you were doing and I listened to that and it was very interesting. So I, I subscribed to your regular podcast with Merlin. Uh, and then when I was going to, you know, I, uh, I, I was in the Air Force and it was a time to take another trip overseas. And uh, I was lamenting all of the great shows I was going to miss because I was, you know, mm. checking your website and checking uh, Hodgman's website and uh, Jonathan Colton's. I was going, oh, man, these guys are going to be out on tour. I'm going to be in the middle of the Sahara Desert. <laughs> and then I remembered, oh, wait, um, we, we actually have a mechanism in the military whereby we can bring our favorite artists to us and they are often happy to do it. Uh, so, uh, and I was going to be the deputy commander of this base in, uh, in Niger. Uh, and so I called the, the, what do you call it? The USO people and say, Hey, I want to set up some, some shows for my, for my base. And they said, absolutely. And, uh, I gave them your names and they kind of ran with it. And three or four months later, you guys showed up. (laughs) I mean, that's a, a wonderful way of, um, streamlining what was an incredible (laughs) procurement process from our end where we had to fill out an awful lot of forms. Turns out there are rules and stuff. Yeah, there really are a ton of those. But just for a little background, the first, my first memory of, uh, or the first time I became aware of you, you sent me an email where you were challenging some of the things I had said publicly yeah. about drone warfare <laughs> uh-huh. uh, and, and what, the, you know, what the moral and, and global implications of it were. And right. you, said, you said, dear sir, you know, I really love your shows and so forth, but I'd like to correct a few misconceptions you have. Uh-huh. And, you know, I get a lot of email like that from listeners. Yeah. So I was like, uh, okay, well, thanks a lot for your contribution. And you said, well, why don't I send you the book I wrote about drone warfare? Uh-huh. <laughs> and I got it and I read it and I was like, oh, I'm dealing with the serious customer. Yeah. So since then, we've been, we've been friends and, and I jumped at the chance to go to Niger uh, along with, and I, I sort of dragged a couple of friends along. I tried to get John Hodgman to come, but he was, uh, I, I guess not surprisingly, but he was timid about... <laughs> Going to Central Africa there, or that Central was, North Africa. This was a little bit on the heels of the uh, big Ebola crisis that wasn't too far from where we were. So uh, that's understandable. Yeah. And things in Nigeria haven't been very stable for a while. He just didn't, he didn't, I think for a lot of us, um, the politics of Africa are a daunting thing to bite off. Sure. You know, there's a lot going on all the time and it's, it's very, it's very difficult to keep abreast of every latest development. Right. Most people don't realize the enormity of the continent, right? The, the continental United States could fit inside the continent of Africa two and a half times. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's dozens of countries, each with their own political issues yeah, there's there's no way, right? You can spend your whole life studying it and and just scratch the surface. 
Yeah, so it was, I mean, I, a, a big part of uh, my wanting to go was wanting to fill in some of those pieces, but also I figured that if you are going to go to Africa uh, and you are in any way concerned about the the political situation, probably a, a United States Air Force base is... <laughs> is a good first step if you want to like as a jumping off point to to discover yeah and at at pretty minimal risk right in general (laughs) considering every time we left the base we were surrounded by people with with uh with with pistols that's right at the very least but so the, the first thing that was confusing to me when you proposed this was that at the time I didn't realize there was any American military presence in Africa. Yeah, yeah, most people uh, beyond, don't. Yeah, beyond just what I would assume would be people at embassies. But I didn't, I didn't think, I w- if you had asked me, I would have been pretty certain there weren't any yeah. Air Force bases in Africa. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you had to kind of explain that the, these were, that this was a new program. It was fairly new when I was there. And I, you know, this was, uh, I got there uh, in the fall of 2014 and stayed for about six months. Uh, it was, the type of operations we were doing there was, was uh, fairly, uh, fairly new. And I, I have to point out, um, this is all publicly available information. You can Google this stuff and you, you'll, you'll learn all about it. And uh, it's hard to say what's going on. You know, I've been out of the loop for a few years now. I can only speculate about what's going on there. Uh, but yeah, when I was there, we, uh, you know, Niger is, is, uh, is one of these places that has a very strategic location, even though itself, uh, as a country is not, you know, they're the, they're the eighth poorest country on earth. The per capita income is about $800 a year. Uh, so it's not very much of a strategic ally. They don't bring a lot of capabilities to the table, but their location, uh, is, is key and they have a lot of problems. They've got, uh, uh, Al Qaeda to the west, ISIS to the north, Boko Haram to the southeast. Uh, but they're this sort of island of stability in the middle of that sea of turmoil. And so, if you're trying to go after those groups, this is, it was a key location. And uh, we were flying a reconnaissance mission out of there, as well as supporting some special operations activity inside the country. And so, my focus was primarily on on. Uh, overseeing the team that made all that happen. And uh, I had a small postage stamp in the middle of the desert that was itself on a Nigerian airbase. Uh, but I had my own security troops. I had uh, uh, civil engineers. I had communications troops. Of course, uh, the the cooks and uh, the support folks, uh, as well as uh, air crew and maintainers to fly these reconnaissance missions. Uh, and, uh, that's the environment that you walked into. Yeah, I was, <clears throat> I was very struck by how, um, what, what a complete universe you had created in a, a very small footprint, including a fully functioning hospital with not just surgeons, but also, uh, orthopedists and, uh-huh. <laughs> um, and you had, you know, anesthesiologists. I sure. mean, it was a full, fu- it was a full mash unit. Yeah. You, you say hospital, but it was a tent. It was, it was a, yeah, a tent. And then a, like a, I think one other tent. Yeah. Uh, that were kind of combined together through a flap. And I, I remember touring and talking to all of the medical people and they were all obviously like extremely capable, 
a, a capable medical team that could handle almost any sort of combat injury. And uh, they were sitting, literally pitching playing cards into a hat across the room. And I said, do you guys get a lot of traffic through here? And they said, we get zero traffic. Yeah. But we're here <laughs> because if you, ha- if you sustained a, a, a significant injury in Africa anywhere, yeah. as, a, as an employee of the United States government or even as a citizen, this would be the only sort of um, trauma center in the whole of, I mean, in an area, I guess, as great as uh, the United States. That's, that's probably States. about, about right. For that type of, uh, you know, level one uh, immediate trauma for the combat type injuries that, that we needed to be prepared for. Yeah, that's probably the case. Uh, uh, I know the, there, there was a couple hospitals in, in Naomi, um, and, and they were fine. Uh, you know, Naomi is a big city. Uh, it is a big city. Uh, Three million people or so, uh, and so you know they 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 were not unsophisticated, uh, but they they were not set up to handle the the type of uh, injuries that we needed to be prepared for. And also conspicuously walking around, walking around trying to be inconspicuous, <clears throat> were a lot of special forces looking people. Uh-huh. <laughs> none none of whom would fully acknowledge being any kind of special forces but there were you know characters with like more facial hair than you're used to seeing on a on an army person that's right <laughs> yeah who, and there who, were who knows who these guys but, were but uh, that's what they looked yeah. like it was unclear they were wearing backwards baseball hats and there were although this was an air force base there were army people there yeah it seemed like there were marines there may or may uh, not have been some Marines there. Right. When also, you were there. Uh, also, again, very difficult to tell. But yeah. No insignia. And then it seemed that there were some French Foreign Legion style people. Well, there certainly were a lot of a lot of French persons in general. Uh, you know, we had a we had a pretty small operation there. I had about 100 folks whose job it was just to to operate this very small base. Uh, but the French had about 800 people uh, stationed there in uh, in Naomi, and then a, they have another 4,000 troops in the in the area. So they used they at the time, uh, who knows what they do now? But at the time, they were using Naomi as sort of a main logistics hub. Uh, and so, yeah, there was lots of Frenchies about. And <clears throat> so, in in surveying the base, it seemed like the Nigerian Air Force was two Super Comanches, a a Learjet. A 707 that hadn't flown in a half a dozen years. And what, like a Piper Cub? Like it wasn't a huge air force. It's, it's, it's a very small air force, a very small military, uh, and they're a super poor country. And so, yeah, they don't, they don't have a lot of sophisticated capabilities. Uh, that's, the, that's, you know, especially listening to General Dunford in the last few days as he's talked about the operations there. That advise and assist mission is is what we were trying to enable there uh, and to help them, you know, because the idea is that they they need to build their own counter terrorist, you know, capacity. And that's what they need help with. And so we can speculate that if the Americans were there, they weren't there to hunt down the terrorists themselves. They were there to help the Nigerians uh, build up their own capabilities and and get better at that stuff. Now. 
<clears throat> I know you're just speculating. Right. So, <clears throat> so we don't need to, I don't think, um, preface everything with a disclaimer. <laughs> it's, a, but, it's a habit. <laughs> do you imagine? I know. The entire time we were in Africa, every single person I asked a question of uh, replied with, first of all, a disclaimer that they <laughs> either were not able, they had no idea or were unable to confirm or deny. That's right. But do you think that the, um, that the operation that went so awry in Niger uh, originated at, at your former base? Yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, you know, when we were there, that was the main logistics hub in the country. Now, they had since, uh, and there's a lot of news articles about this, built up uh, a, a second base in a place called Agadez. And that's in the northern part of the country. And that was supposed to become the main hub of, of operations, particularly the reconnaissance missions and flying the unmanned aircraft. And uh, we were just getting started on that project when I was there. So uh, I imagine it's, it's a proper base at this point. And uh, that's likely the main logistics hub. But who, who knows where these guys originated from or uh, where they were going to. And, when they, uh, and certainly the soldiers that were injured probably ended up in that very trauma center on your base as uh, a first as a first triage. stop right uh while they were getting prepped to be medevaced to europe somewhere uh probably germany and uh yeah probably and uh, I, I can only imagine that by now that um that very basic trauma center is now a, a, a more established location and they were uh, better able to handle uh, those types of injuries yeah hilariously when we were traveling this what what seemed even at the time to to be the beginnings of a well trodden path between um, between there in Niger and our uh, our eventual our eventual sort of destination on the other side in Djibouti, we were flying commercial airlines both sure. both from from Paris to Naimi and then Ethiopian Air from uh, Naimi to Addis Ababa, mm -hmm. and on on both flights. There were a handful, between six and twelve, very young American males who were very fit, yeah. wearing, also wearing baseball hats, pretty worn baseball hats, and several of them chewing tobacco. Mm -hmm. And I remember on the first flight thinking, that's conspicuous. These guys don't seem like, like, uh, like the type of backpackers that are going to be staying in youth hostels. Right. Uh, and particularly, and oh, and this is the, the best part about them was that they were sitting apart from one another on the flights. Like they didn't all sit 12 people <laughs> together. There was one guy over here and sure. one guy over there, but yeah. they stood out like sore thumbs. Yeah. And then on the flight, the Ethiopian flight, I actually approached a couple of them and said, Hey fellas, like, so what brings you to Africa? And they were very reticent to explain of course. how and, and whether or not they even knew each other. And it was <laughs> it was charming, I yeah. thought, that that the US Special Forces operation at the time was so humble that these fellows were just sort of flying in flying back in um in sort of the the back of the plane. Uh-huh. And just uh, just twiddling their thumbs. I mean, they obviously had never been to Africa either. Sure. Or it didn't appear to have. So I'm, pictu I'm picturing that these guys were sort of uh, 
the same type of people that ended up on this operation. Yeah, you know, you, you so you see this now in in the U.S. military, uh, and it started with the invasion of Iraq, uh, where we we decided that the primary approach to defeating Al Qaeda was not going to be a conventional military campaign, but that it was going to be this special operations approach, whereby we identify the key leaders of these different insurgent and terrorist groups, and we hunt them down. Uh, and that by doing so, that's somehow going to, uh, you know, uh, lop the head off of these organizations and they fall apart. Right. And we we poured just a tremendous amount of resources into this effort in Iraq in particular. Uh, and it, it didn't really work. Right. We we I spent tons of time uh, supporting these operations in Iraq and trying to hunt down al-Zarqawi and other al-Qaeda leaders. And we, we got all those guys. Uh, but Iraq kept getting more and more violent. And it wasn't until 2007 when we realized that we needed to totally change our approach to a more classic counterinsurgency approach with General Petraeus, where we, that tide started to turn. It still never was resolved very well. But because of that, we very quickly grew, you know, the special operations community from this very small niche uh, uh group of forces to this huge this huge enterprise right now socom is one of the largest uh combatant commands and that but as we did that you know we have young guys who are uh you know going to mainly support special operations rather than actually participate in you know the front end of the special operations and they are really keen on this culture of blending in uh and being super capable and so that those are the kind of guys that you see, young guys who are going out on their first um, first deployment. And so they're growing their beard and they're, you know, they're wearing civilian clothes. But it's obvious that they're, you know, young Americans in the military uh, and they are they just, you know, they they think that stuff is great. Uh, yeah. The, the 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 more seasoned special ops guys, you're, you're probably not going to know uh, who, who they are on the plane. <laughs> Yeah, right. These guys were, you know, they had just come from McCord Air Force Base or had just, you know, like just graduated from BUDS. Uh, but I, you and I talked quite a bit about this at the time, uh, and it was an, uh, an eye-opener for me that, the, that this strategy you're describing had almost no hearts and minds uh, aspect to it. There, there didn't appear to be, well, certainly there, there didn't appear to be any sort of state department side to it. It was almost exclusively a military operation and within the military, uh, sort of larger picture of the problem, it did seem to be this, that this idea that if you decapitated the, the organizers, that everybody else would was so loosely affiliated that they would just get disheartened and fade back into the woodwork. Right. And there wasn't any, there wasn't any, not, there wasn't a large scale or even a small scale attempt to address, uh, uh, to address the insurgents uh, on an ideological basis or on an economic basis or any kind of, any kind of way that you might, what 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 was formerly hearts and minds, the the attempt to get inside the community and and have a and this was this was the original Green Beret or Special Forces mandate, right? To get right. in and 
and become allies with the locals and figure out a way. And, you know, that was that was marginally or not at all effective in Vietnam, but certainly yeah. in Central America, it was it was our doctrine. So what what happened along the way that we lost any sort of idea that the civilian part of our government, that there would be any diplomacy involved and that it was going to be strictly like our whole interaction with not only these countries like Iraq and Afghanistan, but our yeah. whole interaction with the Muslim world was going to be this tip of the spear interaction rather than being a holistic one. So, so it goes in the modern era, it, go, it goes back to Vietnam. Uh, and and in, in Vietnam, we did we did discover pretty late in the game that that classic counterinsurgency approach is effective, and that if you are going to be successful at rooting out these types of insurgencies, that's what you have to do, right? You have to, uh, you know, the, the strategic asset uh, in those types of campaigns is the population itself, and you have to not just remove the threat to them, uh, but also uh, you know, make them see that their lives are just going to be better uh, if they are on your side, right? Uh, and Ken, if, I don't know if you've been watching the Ken Burns documentary, but uh, uh, th this is pretty well documented now, and it, it it's effective, but it's also really, really hard. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. it's really, really hard to <laughs> learn Vietnamese um, <laughs> and understand what's going on inside their culture uh, and and deal with corrupt governments, right? It's just so much easier to bomb people. <laughs> wow! And, and plus, we're really, really good at it, and and so. Uh, and then when, of course, uh, under Donald Rumsfeld, uh, after 9-11, uh, we decided, you know, so after Vietnam, we decided this is hard. And so we're just never going to do this again. Right. We're going to. Is that right? Yeah. We're 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 and all of the lessons uh, that were learned during Vietnam were were dismissed. Right. They were eventually purged from all the army doctrine. Uh, and forgotten and, you know, relegated to the to the ash heap of history. And the, U the U.S. military decided that we are just not going to do that anymore. We are going to focus on fighting big wars. Uh, and that was ultimately expressed during Desert Storm, where we completely dismantled this enormous. I mean, you know, people forget the uh, uh, in 1991, the Iraqi military was the, the third or fourth largest in the world. It was enormous on paper. It looked. It looked uh, terrifying. Uh, and we dismantled it in a month, right? Because by just blowing up everything, everything we could find, you know, by then we had developed the, the ability to find everything and then blow up everything. And we blew up a lot of stuff that wasn't the things we were trying to blow up. But we, but because we blew up everything, uh, the, the, the Iraqi military utterly fell apart. Uh, and so after that, we said, yeah, this is, this is how you do things, right? You just go in there, you blow up everything, and then, then you go home. Uh, of course, we ended up staying in Iraq ever since, and I spent thousands of hours flying missions over the north, the southern and northern no-fly zones for the for years you know uh after desert storm and prior to the invasion of iraq but then uh but you know we by the time 2001 had rolled around we had grown so sophisticated in these targeting uh capabilities that donald rumsfeld thought that that's all we needed to do right we could send in a handful of special forces troops with radios and binoculars uh and they could point lasers and we could identify what we needed to blow up, do it very quickly. And the, the enemy would fall apart 
And so that's the attitude that we went into the invasion of Iraq uh, with. And it took four years for us to realize that this is just not working. And finally, we returned to the counterinsurgency strategy under Petraeus, and we had to relearn all of those lessons, uh, which we have now, again, forgotten. So so what is it? I mean, the the Curtis LeMay doctrine yeah. in, in Vietnam that we bombed them back to the Stone Age. Yeah. I mean, we uh, dropped tons. Would you say... Millions of tons or hundreds of thousands of tons? Millions of tons. In fact, at the height of Operation Linebacker 2, uh, at the height of the Vietnam War, we were dropping more bombs on North Vietnam in terms of tonnage per month than we dropped on all of Germany and Japan in all of World War II. Right. So, so at, at least in the case of Vietnam, there was not an amount of bombs that we could drop that would, that would quote unquote, pacify the country. That's right. And it took us a, a long time to learn that. And then in Iraq, it seemed uh, during the first Gulf War and, and again, uh, catastrophically in the second Gulf War, we dismantled the military without any thought to the fact that it was only the military that held the country together or there, there was no, there was no effective police force, and it, and I think we also dismantled them. Yeah, um, and we took all of the high brass at the end of the war, the surviving military. We just we actually fired them all, right? Just sent them home. We we, we just well we they didn't go home, but yeah, we said uh, you are no longer <laughs> there is no longer an Iraqi military. Uh, you have no job here. Uh, we took the seat of the Iraqi government in Baghdad. We built a big wall around it, made out of these big sand, these uh, big sandbags uh, called Hesco barriers. You've seen them, right? They're these giant yep. um, steel-framed canvas bags that we fill full about a, and they each contain about a ton of dirt, and we stack them all up. So we we surrounded the the cent, you know the central government sector of, of Baghdad with these barriers, and we moved in and we set up shop. We called it the Green Zone, <laughs> and there were no Iraqi government officials uh, at all in the seat of this new Iraqi government. For but years. it also seemed it also seemed like there were no American government people or very few. Like we right. we were not prepared to police the country, and we had eliminated the police. Right. Uh, the Iraqi police. And then we, we uh, it didn't, there didn't appear to be on, on the part of our own military, an understanding or a willingness to use our soldiers as like crime solving police or crime preventing police. No, of course not. That's not what they're for. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we created a terrible, terrible situation there. And it took yeah. us a long, long time through yeah. and a lot of bloodshed to get to a point where we were able to forget all those lessons again. That's right. In in Afghanistan. Now, at what point, like, what would the what would the prospect, or I'm sorry, what would the method be, the methodology, to put it into army speak? Mm-hmm. No, I, I uh, of of having a more fully integrated American notion of this kind of armed diplomacy. Yeah. where there was actually a diplomacy element to it, where, I mean, we have an enormous State Department, we have an enormous uh, uh, 
arm of our of our globally focused government right that's dedicated to understanding the local culture in a place i mean f- just from a protocol standpoint you wouldn't send somebody you wouldn't send an ambassador to iraq without having a whole dossier on how you shake hands with people how uh-huh. you well, who the locals are and how to know their local uh, peculiarities and what the rivalries are so we have people working on this stuff. We have the information. It is part of our diplomatic protocol. Right. We have the capacity to, if we decide to intervene in a, in a global hotspot, yeah. to, go, to go in there with a more encompassing idea yeah. of how to inter- interact. But that isn't part of our operational <laughs> philosophy at all. Yeah. And, and in, instead we charge this, we charge our military both with waging these operations. Right. And also then with knowing how to talk to the locals, knowing how to resolve, resolve tribal conflicts. And a lot of this is falling on the backs of like a major in the U S army, a guy that's, that's right. 30, 38 years old. Yeah. And has spent the majority of his career learning the logistics of moving pallets around the, the, the globe. <laughs> uh-huh. And he's really and good at that, all, by the way, at he's that point. He's super good at moving pallets. And then all yeah. of a sudden you're like, oh, well, this guy over here says that that guy stole 30 goats from him. <laughs> what are you going to do about it? That's right. And the major's like, durr. So what is, what is broken? I mean, obviously the State Department doesn't get one-tenth one or one-one-hundredth of the budget. Right. But why are we so bad at at integrating <laughs> what we know? Yeah, so so I'll I'll give you a little anecdote that that illustrates that. Uh, the the U.S. Air Force once saw fit to send me to a, a course called the Advanced uh, Joint Warfighters Course in Norfolk, Virginia. It's a ten week course whereby you learn how to plan joint operations. Uh, And part of that approach that they, it's all academics with a little bit of tabletop type exercises. Uh, And most of that approach for the first five or six weeks is, you know, what they call the whole of government approach. And we we even had uh, an acronym for it. It's called DIME. So DIME stands for Diplomacy, uh, Information, Military, Economic. And that's the approach. It really rings, doesn't (laughs) it? It really does. (laughs) Uh, And and that's the approach that you're supposed to take uh, when you are uh, thinking about operations, planning operations, and you're supposed to start from these very very lofty strategic goals that are outlined for you by the President of the United States in a document called the National Security Strategy. And And that says that in this part of the world, here are our big goals. This is what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, and it kind of goes to the whole the whole globe, outlining those strategic objectives. Uh, and then you are supposed to work with uh, the the rest of the uh, instruments of government power, uh, you know, not just military, but information, diplomatic, and economic. So the State Department, uh, the uh, uh, American, uh, the USAID organization that does international aid, uh, non non governmental agencies, etc. Uh, to craft this strategy whereby you identify your strategic objectives, uh, you identify the operational links uh, to accomplish that, and then you actually focus on the tactical elements that uh, will link your 
your operations to your strategy. And they brought it all. Sorry to interrupt, but when you went to this course, this Uh dime course, you were a major in the U.S. Air Force? I was a brand new lieutenant colonel. A uh, brand new lieutenant colonel, and the idea okay. is that this is this is you know in the in the air force to to make a, to become a general actually in the whole military to become a general you have to achieve what's called a joint qualification, and that requires that you attend this course as well as have a certain amount of experience in different joint staff uh, assignments, and so the this course was to prepare you to go off to a joint staff where you would actually be planning these engagements. And they brought in all of these guest speakers from, you know, State Department and other organizations. And and then you, you, you sat around and you thought about this stuff. And it was a good course. And, you, 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 you know, you were in there with a group of your peers and you were sharing your different experiences from your careers and uh, having good conversations about this and doing research and writing papers. And uh, but then at the end of the course, you have a sort of a graduation exercise where you uh, you plan you know a, a campaign, and we immediately forgot all about uh, all of the other elements of dime besides the military, and figured out how we were going to blow up everything we could find. Right, <laughs> and then have this sort of computer aided tabletop exercise whereby we we were graded on how much stuff we blew up. And, and you told me an, an- anecdote where you were not actually in a classroom environment, but actually in a war zone and being given a briefing by a general where uh, the general was outlining. Oh, it wasn't, it wasn't any general. It was Stanley McChrystal. Uh Uh-huh. Why don't you tell that? Why don't you tell that anecdote? Because that, that one really uh, whitened the hair on my temple. (laughs) So, uh, so there's this organization. This was when I was on this, uh, uh, one of the air force staffs. And there's, there was an organization called the, uh, uh, the uh, what were they called? They're, they're, they're an arm of the Joint Staff that does operational analysis, uh, the Joint Center for Operational Analysis, the JCOA. And they are tasked by different combatant commanders to uh, go out and do, do studies and analyze different operations and then come back and tell the generals, you know, what's working, what's not working, what, they, what do they need to fix? And this was in a 2007 time frame, right when we, General Petraeus had taken over and he was, he was switching the approach in Iraq and he wanted to know what was working and what wasn't working. At the time, Stanley McChrystal was the special operations commander in Iraq. Uh, and so he was busy doing all his manhunting, trying to hunt down Al-Qaeda. And uh, so we were sent, I was on the team that was, you know, supposed to be on these, this team of experts to go out and, and find all, all this information. And we were sent to... General McChrystal's headquarters at Balad Air Base and uh, to find out, you know, what was going on there, what was what was working. So General McChrystal and his uh, time, he was a I think he was a two star uh, and he was sitting there with his his staff and uh, they were uh, very, um, you know, they, they they were telling us everything that they were doing. And I won't go into a lot of specifics, uh, but they started out their briefing with what they call a squeeze play slide. And it sort of outlined the different groups in Iraq. And in the center of the, this slide was a circle labeled population. And it was sort of, these are the ordinary people in Iraq, and these are the people that you have to win over. Um, and they were, th- this was intended to, uh, to represent a group of folks who were already supportive of Iraqi central government and the American efforts to bolster that central government. And this uh, was a special operations, this was a special operations briefing. This was their strategy. This wasn't an overall 
no, military that's strategy, right. but that's right. This was what they ops. were. Yeah, the, the the strategy that their operations were trying to support. Uh, and then on the there was a, a layer around that internal group of sort of the, they call them the fence sitters. And these are people who are, again, ordinary citizens of Iraq, but uh, they aren't necessarily supportive of the Iraqi government, but they aren't necessarily supportive of the insurgency either. Uh, and then so they are the ones we have to win over. And then the outer layer were your hardcore insurgents who were supporting uh, Al Qaeda in Iraq or supporting the the, the Shiite militias. Uh, and they are the ones who were planning IEDs and trying to blow things up and and were the sort of the military threat. Right. And so and then General McChrystal explained that the idea was that if we went after that outer layer and remove them as a source of of chaos in the country that the um, that the, the the that middle group would naturally gravitate to the center right mm, mm. And, and so that's what they were trying to do right and then they they spent the next hour explaining in 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 great detail the tactics that they were using to hunt down the bad guys right so now th- yeah. this this notion um first of all i i if i were drawing that i would put the bad guys at the center uh-huh. and then the larger population out because the outer rim seems like the one that has the potential to be infinitely large yeah, or like, you know, that's the larger scope. Right. And then, then the center is this small group of people that you're trying to target. But, uh, but in any, anyway, leaving my uh, graphic sense aside, where did this idea come from? Did it have any supporting evidence in the larger community of, of political scientists? Sure. Or was this just something that they came up with that sounded good? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Uh, probably more of the latter. Uh, I'm sure it stemmed, you know, in the U.S. we have a, 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 this long history going all the way back to Billy Mitchell of uh, attempting to wage moral war, right, whereby... You know, because actually defeating an enemy military is hard. And uh, especially in the early days of air power, uh, hitting anything from the air was really hard. You know, trying to fly around fabric wing biplanes, trying to hit something on the ground is, is super hard. And so Billy Mitchell, Guglio Douay, some of these early air power strategists uh, came up with this idea that, well, maybe you didn't have to do that. Maybe you could just go bomb cities. And by doing so, you could make the population so unhappy that they would force their government to surrender. And we spent a lot of time and energy in World War II trying to prove that. And we killed a lot of people, uh, millions of people in, in uh, Germany and Japan, you know, burning cities to the ground, trying to demonstrate this principle of uh, of moral defeat of the enemy with pretty mixed results. So it may have been, may have come from that, but my guess is it was really a way to sort of uh, provide a rationale for what they really wanted to do, which was hunt down these bad guys. Right. Well, shoot their guns. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, again, not that these, and you know, I don't want to seem too, uh, too cavalier about this. I mean, these, these, I have, uh, you know, a great uh, respect and admiration for General McChrystal. He's a, uh, he's a, one of these uh, pioneers of special operations. And of course the folks who were there who worked for him were serious and dedicated professionals. And uh, they were, you know, as they were doing this also thinking very hard about how to, uh, avoid civilian casualties and not blowing up the whole country as they conducted these operations. But yeah, they did want to uh, use a military solution to solve this political problem. Uh, and so we sat through this briefing and took notes and asked questions. 
And, you know, uh, General McChrystal at the beginning of the briefing, by the way, said, hey, I am here to answer the tough questions. That's why I'm sitting here in this briefing for you guys. So don't be afraid to just uh, ask me whatever you got and I'm going to tell it to you like it is. Right. And so, you know, so I took him at his word at that. And at the end of the briefing, I, I stood up and I said, General, this is a very interesting briefing about your tactics, but I'm, I'm very interested in that initial squeeze play slide that you showed. Uh, and I'm wondering if there's any, uh, if you've done any operational analysis to determine if that approach is working, right? If, are, are we getting any closer to achieving that strategic objective? And uh, he paused for a second. And um, at the time, you know, they were a special operations task force. And they were part of the um, the coalition uh, core, the Army Corps in Iraq, called the Multinational Corps of Iraq, MNCI. And so he, General McChrystal paused for a second, and then he said, you know, we, we actually leave that operational analysis up to the core guy, the guys at the core level, and so you should ask them that question. I said, okay, I, I made a note of that. Well, about a, a week later, I was in Baghdad uh, speaking to the, the core intel officer, another two-star general, uh, who, is, who is giving us a briefing about... Uh, the operate the intelligence operations in Iraq, the military intelligence operations, and how they were using all of their intelligence and reconnaissance assets to wage the campaign. And so, at the end of the briefing, uh, I asked him the qu same question. I said, "General, um, you know, are your operations advancing us towards our strategic goals? And do you, you know, what what is the what what is the criteria that you're using to evaluate that?" And he paused for a second and he said, you know, we actually leave that question up to the task force. <laughs> hmm. so, so it was it, it turned out it was no one's job to right. de determine if uh, we were if any of this was making any difference. Right. Well, it, so <clears throat> McChrystal's answer has a has some justification, right? He's just the. He's the army. Mm -hmm. He's out there uh, shooting guns and, um, and shouldn't be expected to have a big picture of the operation because they are the ones being ordered into battle by people higher up the chain. Well, uh, to, and to so, a certain extent. I mean, Stan McChrystal at the time was a two-star general. Generals are supposed to operate at the strategic level. That, that's why right. you have generals. <laughs> right. <laughs> like if you'd right. ask a captain that question, of course, he's not going to know. Right. His, his business is to is to uh, get his guys on the line to shoot at the right things. Uh, right. But the two star generals ought to be able to answer those questions. Well, except that in our system, uh, the American system, at least in theory, we have a we ultimately as you go further up the chain, you arrive at a place where you are under civilian command. That's right. Right. The, the army air Navy air force Marines should not be tasked with, uh, the, I mean, within their own operations, they certainly should be diplomatic and aware of diplomacy, but they can't be the ultimate deciders of, a of the, of the larger picture of, I guess, pacifying a nation and rebuilding a government and so forth. That's right. The, um, they are not supposed to be the ones who, who identify what that's, what those strategic objectives are. Right. Uh, they are supposed to be figuring out how to achieve them. And in my, in my experience, certainly as a civilian observing, uh, observing the U S military, observing the global ambitions of the United States, 
it seems often to to the layperson like an overwhelmingly large operation and you want to think in the in the parlance of the Kennedy administration that the best minds that we have available are are on the case. Yeah. So so relax fellow citizens because we <laughs> have the best uh we have the plan. I think uh, that's certainly the the general sense, you know, among Americans, right? That the military knows what it's doing, uh, right. that we have these generals and generals are really smart. And, you know, that's why we go to all these fancy schools. We, you know, we spend a lot of money send, sending these, you know, mid-level and senior officers to all these different schools so they could figure that stuff out. Uh, and then And then we kind of leave it to the military. The military, which is primarily, as you describe, like their actual job is to fight. That's right. And so we're we're asking the military to do completely contradictory things, which is both be really good at fighting and uh-huh. also, I mean, the, the major advantage or the major strength of the U.S. military is logistical. Yeah. We're capable of delivering not just our soldiers— but all of the fresh water and all of the Hershey bars and all of the uh, decaffeinated coffee yep. uh, to them and to continue to sustain them with our enormous military airlift command yeah, so that they can f- and, and our submarines and, and aircraft carriers so that they can fight these sustained wars mm-hmm. uh, around the globe. And that is our primary strength in addition to our, our great big weapons. Yeah. Uh, and that strength is a, is a thing that a lot of brass in the military that that was how they succeeded, right? They were right. how they succeeded within the military. They were really good at moving stuff around. That's right. About ninety percent. This is some uh, people don't under, don't realize. About ninety percent of the military is is dedicated to support and logistics. Right. It's a very. It's only about one in ten uh, of folks wearing uniforms whose job it is to actually aim a weapon and pull a trigger. Right. But then we're asking this entire organization to also be practicing this global di- diplom- diplomatic perspective, certainly yeah. the, the higher ranking people, which would effectively make their primary job um, both less exciting and also <laughs> like obsolete or I mean, every single every single diplomatic solution means that you don't get to shoot any you don't get to use any bradley fighting vehicles you don't get to and use bradley fighting vehicles and you don't get to you know when you when your job is to is to move things around the world then you have a very clear uh you know way to measure your success <laughs> if, if, if your stuff gets there and you can use it and you can set it up and you can talk to each other you know, you're you're that's that's what you're trying to do. Right. And that's how right. you get evaluated throughout your career. Uh, right. You know, whether or not the you are turning the tide of the civilian population in a country, <laughs> that's very hard to measure. And it's really hard to, deter, to determine if you're doing your good. Right. And so you tend to, you know, get distracted by the things where you can demonstrate success. Well, and it, 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 it seems like a, it's a no-brainer to say that if you go to all this trouble and great expense to move yeah. a Bradley fighting vehicle or to move a striker task force uh-huh. to a place that you are going to want to use it. 
right? Sure. You're not going to, you don't move it all there and set it up and set up the communications and give everybody a Hershey bar right. and then say, stand down men while <laughs> this Lieutenant Colonel that's been to a, been to a, a, a diplomatic college course is going to go in here and talk to these people and resolve this problem. Right. Particularly if that's your background and that's where you came from. Right. So I, I have seen military commanders who, who are sort of at the joint level and who we spend a lot of time and energy trying to train to be joint leaders, but because they grew up as fighter pilots or as artillery officers, right. Or, or whatever their, their technical background is, that's the first tool in the tool chest they want to reach for. Right. We won't.